Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Eiko Thielemann. Um, I'm the director of the LSE Migration Studies Unit and co-convener of a new LSE Migration Graduate Program on International Migration and Public Policy. It's um, my pleasure to welcome you all to, um, to LSE on behalf of the European Institute and the Migration Studies Unit, in particular, obviously, our two, two speakers today, um, Minister Bilstrom and uh, Peter Sutherland. Um, this conversation today is part of um, the European Institute's um, series um, entitled Perspectives on Europe, which is uh, sponsored by um, UPGO Worldwide. Um, and um, I've been asked to remind you all that um, the conversation will be recorded today and we hope to be able to make a podcast available on the LSE website um, shortly. <coughs> Just to briefly introduce uh, today's uh, topic, um, I think um, one can fairly say that uh, this conversation could hardly be more, more topical. In difficult economic times, um, one can often observe an almost knee-jerk reaction um, to tighten immigration policies, or at least to try and do that. This is despite, I guess, a more general recognition that um, migrants play a crucial economic role, both in sending countries as well as in receiving countries. And the challenge for European policymakers, as the title of today's conversation suggests, is to think about um, ways to design policies that can maximize the, the benefits of migration and um, in the promotion of economic growth and, and development. So to, to discuss this challenge for, um, I guess, um, policymakers, um, I'm delighted to, to welcome today's um, speakers, um, Tobias Bilström and Peter Sutherland. Tobias Bilström is the Swedish Minister for Migration and Asylum Policy. He's a member of the Swedish Moderate Party, a former Minister of Employment, and a former member of the Swedish Migration Board. Peter Sutherland is the United Nations Special Representative <coughs> for Migration and Chair of the Global Forum for on Migration and Development, a former European Commissioner and Director General of the WTO. He's also Chairman of Goldman Sachs International and the Chair of the LSE Court of, of Governance. Peter Sutherland has kindly agreed to, to kick us off. Um, Peter, you are from a country, Ireland, uh, where this topic has had particular resonance. We're looking forward to your, to your contribution. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you all for being here. Sunny day, pre-exam period, not the best of times for a discussion of a, a serious subject at lunchtime, but um, I'm grateful that you're with us. As, as, as has been said, as an Irishman, I have a particular feeling about migration. My, my countrymen have been doing it for centuries in great numbers. Uh, even in these straightened economic times, it's probably no harm to point out, however, that the Irish population is now made up uh, by 17% of its total number as migrants, 776,000 migrants in Ireland. And the Irish population is going up, notwithstanding very high unemployment, and it's going up because of migration. So migration is a phenomenon that doesn't always follow the patterns that one might expect having regard to economic circumstances. But there are reasons for concern about the whole subject of migration today in Europe political parties all over Europe are demonstrating tendencies of xenophobia or even racism which are extremely worrying. Socialists in Athens to fascists in the Netherlands are all displaying the same type of negativism towards migration. The foreign born are increasingly marginalised in schools and at the workplace and are undermined by discrimination. And yet at the same time, despite high unemployment, much across much of the continent, too many European employers don't have the workers necessary to do what they require them to do. For an example, Germany lacks over 120,000 engineers, doctors and nurses are in short supply across the whole continent, and so too are farmhands and home health aides, just to take a number of examples. And we can never have enough entrepreneurs, needless to say, in these times in Europe. But the prevailing anti-immigrant sentiment in many places is not wholly unfounded. 
Uh, many of our communities are genuinely polarized, and the responsibility for that polarization is not, not just on one side. We're all collectively to blame. Europe has been too slow to acknowledge that, like the United States and Canada and Australia, we are a country, uh, an area, a land of immigrants. The percentage of foreign-born residents in several European countries is now greater or roughly the same as that in the United States of America. I'm thinking of Spain, the UK, Germany, the Netherlands and Greece, amongst others. And yet, despite this, the necessary in innovations and investments to integrate newcomers into our schools and workplaces has not been made, nor have public institutions been reshaped to be truly inclusive and responsive to our diverse societies. Political leaders have to shoulder some of the blame. They have allowed immigration to become a scapegoat for a host of other unrelated problems, uh, the enduring insecurity caused by the global economic crisis uh, and by the rise of emerging powers is too, too often gets expressed in reactions against migrants. Uh, not only is this unjust, but it distracts from generating solutions to the real problems at hand. Ironically, Europe's anti-immigrant sentiment is peaking just at the moment when global structural changes are fundamentally shifting migration flows. The most important transformation is the emergence of new poles of attraction. One of these, of course, is education, as this school in particular testifies. Entrepreneurs, migrants with PhDs, or those simply with a desire to improve their lives are flocking to new places like Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, Mexico, China, and India. In the coming decade, almost all the growth in migration will take place in the south. The west is no longer seen as the promised land. No doubt similar sentiments are expressed about uh, Europe as those about the United States. The United States for the first time in memory saw a net outflow of Mexican migrants last year. In a report on this phenomenon, an 18-year-old Mexican had this to say, for years we dreamed of America but now that dream is no good. There are no jobs and too many problems. We don't want to go. Europe's troubles are not only a product of our faltering economies, but also often hostile rhetoric against immigrants. Listen to what even our most mainstream politicians are saying. Here in the UK, there is talk of, quote, an addiction to foreign workers and the need to wean ourselves off of them. In France, the new president is keeping his predecessor's ban on burqas in place. I could go on. I won't trouble you meanwhile with the details of uh, Europe's demographies, which no doubt you all know. Suffice it to say that Europe is shrinking, and it's shrinking rather fast. So too is much of the developed world. Japan's population, for instance, will be one-third smaller in 2060 than it is today. This is not a hopeful picture I'm painting. I know that, but it is all, all is far from lost. In fact, we have put ourselves in this situation by a combination of inaction and short-sighted policy making. I'm happy that we have with us here today uh, uh, the minister from Sweden who has played a significant role in, uh, in developing migration policy in Sweden. Uh, he is also the Dean of the European Union's JHA Council, Justice and Home Affairs Council, having served there since 2006. Back home, he has undertaken fundamental reforms that in more rational times might be the envy of Europe. Uh, they certainly have caught the attention of Australia and Canada, which are aiming to emulate them, at least in part. Sweden's labour migration policy allows employers to directly identify the workers they need and it has defied the critics and is working smoothly. I'll leave it to Minister Gilstrom to elaborate on this. Sweden might be amongst the examples of forward-looking migration policies but there are rays of hope elsewhere also. Earlier this year, for an example, Chancellor Merkel launched a campaign to encourage those with immigrant backgrounds to apply for public sector jobs in police forces, fire departments and the media. Uh, 
I must say, in, in, in parenthesis, I was amazed, having been invited by uh, uh, Prime Minister Cameron and Mrs. Merkel to do a report on a trade issue which was sensitive, uh, to uh, discover that the person who was uh, brought to me as my assistant, playing a crucial role in this whole thing from the British Civil Service, was a French anarch. So things are happening even in Europe where we're beginning to recognize that you hire people on the basis of their ability rather than their nationality. Our understanding, therefore, is developing all the time. And over the past decade, decade or two, our knowledge about migration and integration has grown. We know what to do. We now need to muster the political will to do it. All that I've said thus far involves developments in Europe and the crucial role immigrants can play in our economic and social progress here in the UK and on the continent. <laughs> but no doubt from the title of this session you will have assumed that we would be discussing development in the developing world also. And of course we should and will because migration must become a more robust part of Europe's foreign and development policy. Again the facts are plain. Migrants contribute in many ways to the development of their own countries of origin. The whole obvious issue of remittances is a crucial element of this, where societies, in particular for an example the Philippines, are sustained by the massive amount of emigrants' remittances which support their societies. Uh, but not merely that, uh, where migrants have sent over 350 billion to developing countries alone in 2011, which incidentally is an 8% increase over the previous year. There are other things happening as well. For an example, the harnessing of diasporas to help in the development of home countries. Today there are 77 offices, bodies and posts that governments in 56 countries have created specifically to formalise their engagement with their diasporas. The vast majority of these have been created in the last decade. There are six programme areas in which diasporas play a central positive role, remittances, direct investments, human capital transfers, philanthropic contributions, capital market investments and tourism. In each of these areas there's a growing richness of ideas and a growing involvement of the diasporas. The human capital of migrants, migrants is also being tapped in an abundance of other ways, which generally fall into broad categories. Governments have engaged members of diasporas as practitioners who fill critical resource and knowledge gaps directly via permanent, temporary or even virtual return of migrants. Partners who support local individuals in a long-term exchange of resources and knowledge. Members of scientific, technical and business networks with whom potential research, business and investment opportunities in the origin country can be developed. Some countries have used migration to address humanitarian crises. I'm thinking of Haiti in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. Last year the United States added Haiti to the list of 50-odd countries eligible for temporary work visas meaning that U.S. employers are free to employ Haitians for short-term agricultural work and other seasonal employment opportunities. Remittances to Haiti were already valued at $2 billion annually, nearly twice what the U.S. pledged in aid for the post-earthquake uh, reconstruction. If just 2,000 Haitians go to work in the U.S. each year, they could add up to $400 million in additional income for Haitian families over 10 years. Unfortunately, I don't believe that Europe has responded as it should have responded to the Arab Spring and to the crises that we have seen developing there, most notably with the Libyan example, where the uh, appalling circumstances of migrants have already been documented and the lack of organisation to deal with their problems has also been identified. In that regard, let me make uh, a draw a parallel to the uh, activity of one of the poorer countries in the world, the Philippines, which maintains not merely lists of its migrants in the various countries where they are, but also activates from Manila task forces, as they did in the case of Libya, to send in a team to deal with the, those who have, who, have ended, who, have, who have ended up in distress. There's one thing that we know, and it is that no nation is any more an island. 
when it comes to migration. No nation can tackle this phenomenon on its own. I'm delighted that, the Swe that Sweden will take over the chair of the Global Forum next year and in spring 2014 will host the seventh plenary session. Uh, this is a new form of dialogue between countries of origin and destination which we think is making some progress in filling the void in terms of the dialogue between the rich and the poor in the world today. We've come a long way, but we've gone a long way also uh, to turn uh, some corners in terms of attitudes. It's not all bleak by any means, but we have to break through the myths about migration. For instance, that multiple citizenship undercuts allegiance to countries of destination. We have to seize the facts and understand that migration is changing in fundamental ways. Most migrants no longer think of emigration as being permanent, and nor should they necessarily do so. And we have to continue to push ourselves to come up with systems and approaches that respond to these new realities about migration. That's why I'm very happy to cede the floor to Minister Bilstrup. Minister. much Peter. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all I would like to thank the European Institute at the LSE for the opportunity to speak on the important topic of how migration policies can promote development. Uh, the links between migration and development is a prioritized policy area of the Swedish government. We believe that if migration is managed uh, responsibly, it has the potential to benefit receiving countries countries of origin and migrants themselves. Um, as the next chair uh, of the Global Forum of Migration Development and with the upcoming high-level dialogue on migration and development in 2013, Sweden is aiming at an increased international interest for this policy area. Uh, migration has been and continues to be a key driver of human progress and development. Many countries have come to the understanding that migration forms a key component of their development strategies. Migrants are crucial actors for development through the remittances they send home, just as Peter mentioned, uh, for promoting trade and investment between countries of destination and countries of origin, and through the skills and the ideas that they bring to the countries they come to, whether a country of destination or a return to their countries of origin. If we look at remittances, uh, migrants send back billions of dollars each year to their countries of origin, and these remittances have reached a sum of approximately uh, 350 billion US dollars a year, which is three times the value, the volume of official development aid going to the same countries. The flows of private funds makes an important contribution to development, not just for the recipient, but also for the society by a whole, by stimulating consumption and increasing citizens' investment uh, in social services, such as education or healthcare. Further efforts are, however, needed to ensure that remittances can achieve their full development potential. Improving the uh, general investment climate in countries of origin is one example of such an effort, when development cooperation uh, supports the fight against corruption and the building of well-functioning institutions, the desire and the willingness to engage and invest in the country of origin is likely to increase. When formulating policy on international migration and development, our overall aim must be to enable people to migrate out of choice rather than out of necessity. And this calls for a broad, a balanced, and a long-term approach. A key aspect of such an approach is to promote coherent policy approaches that promote synergies between migration and other relevant policy areas, including development cooperation, trade, foreign affairs, and integration. And in this regard, it is important to recognize that the patterns of migration are changing partly as a consequence of globalization. The old paradigm of migration for permanent settlement is increasingly giving way to more temporary 
and circular migration and mobility as a livelihood strategy for many migrants. At the EU level, uh, the overall framework of the EU external migration policy, i.e. the global approach to migration and mobility, is designed to establish true and genuine cooperation and partnerships with third countries on all aspects of migration of strategic importance. The global approach has contributed to constructive dialogue and cooperation with EU partners and the EU has reached a unique position uh, in this global context through the development of the partnership idea as a trademark. The global approach has also promoted the development of a cohesive policy for the Union's relations with third countries. And in this context I think it is important to underline and to emphasize that the links between migration and development should remain central to all EU policies on migration, including the global approach. Openness towards the world is one of Sweden's priorities. Uh, it is a starting point in Swedish immigration policy that migration is something positive and beneficial to our society. In this respect, I am proud of the labour migration reform mentioned by Peter Sutherland which entered into force in Sweden in December of 2008. It is one of the most significant reforms of Swedish migration policy in several decades, and Sweden has now one of the most flexible and efficient systems for labour migration in the world, which makes it easier for Swedish companies to recruit labour <coughs> from countries outside of the European Union. The main driving force for the Swedish reform is the recognition that there are labour shortages in Sweden that will not be filled by people living in Sweden or in other EU countries. Employers have often difficulties in finding workers with the right skills. By filling these shortages in key economic sectors, migrants thereby contribute to the overall growth of the Swedish society and the Swedish economy. There is also the demographic situation in Sweden to take into account. Our population is getting older and a smaller proportion of people of working age will therefore have to support an increasing percentage of the population in the future. In the long term this poses a serious challenge to the sustainability of our welfare systems. In order to success successfully address these challenges a forward-looking and broad political strategy is required uh, and in this regard labour immigration is part of Sweden's strategy for economic development in the immediate but also in the long-term run. It is also important to remember that the challenges I just mentioned facing Sweden are as demanding, uh, if not more, for the entire European Union. And facilitating growth of the European labour force by opening up for legal migration from third countries <coughs> is essential in order to ensure that our labour markets remain diverse and vibrant. It is also crucial for achieving the targets set out in the EU's growth strategy of EU 2020. The Swedish policy development continues to evolve and we are currently looking at how the positive connections between migration and development can be further facilitated. And to that end, Sweden is looking at ways to enable circular migration. Now, I know that there are many definitions of circular migration, but in Sweden, the term is used to describe how migrants that have a residence permit in Sweden can have the opportunity to return and contribute to development in their country of origin. Circular migration in the Swedish context is not a temporary migrant worker program, but a view that it should be possible for migrants to make a decision to leave Sweden, either on a temporary or more permanent basis and still have the possibility to come back again. And we believe that this kind of spontaneous movement allows migrants to be active in the development in their countries of origin. Spontaneous movement can take place when there is an enabling legislative framework that facilitates mobility. And in order to improve possibilities of circular migration to Sweden, the Swedish government in July 2009 appointed an independent parliamentary committee to examine the link between circular migration and development. The committee's task uh, was to map out circular migration 
and identify factors that influence migrants' opportunities to circulate, i.e. to move from Sweden to their countries of origin and back to Sweden again. The final report was presented last year, and the report contains proposals both for legislative changes uh, and other recommendations aimed at facilitating increased back and forth mobility between Sweden and migrants' countries of origin in order to promote its positive development effects. It also contains proposals regarding the diaspora's roles as agents of development. As suggesting in the beginning of my speech, uh, migrants contribute to development by bringing new skills and ideas to their countries of origin. In this regard, members of the diaspora as well as circular migrants can, for instance, promote democracy and gender equality, two important aspects of Swedish development cooperation in their countries of origin. And the recommendations and proposals of the committee are currently being reviewed within the government offices. As mentioned, Sweden will take over the presidency of the Global Forum of Migration and Development in January 2013. This forum is a unique platform for informal and non-binding <coughs> dialogue on migration and development between states. Our presidency means, among many other things, that Sweden will share the Global Forum during the UN high-level dialogue on migration and development in September 2013. It is my ambition that we will use both these opportunities to put development aspects of migration as well as mainstreaming migration into the broader policy context at the forefront of the discussions. And we hope to make progress both at the national level as well as the European and the global levels. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I now give the floor back to the Excellent. Uh, thank you very much um, for your uh, for your comments, Minister. Um, as Peter Sutherland said, uh, Swedish immigration policy is often seen as a forward-looking example for other countries. Um, from your remarks, um, I think we can take that that extends beyond asylum policy. Now, this has been well established um, into, into other areas of migration policy. Um, our speakers have kindly agreed to take questions. Um, we have about um, 25 minutes or so. If you could um, state your, your name and affiliation, and, um, and I will um, then try and collect and get um, as many as, as questions from the floor as possible. I'd like to thank the young speakers, Mr. Chairman, for expressing their theses in so clearly in such a short time. Um, my name is Paul Hudson. I'm no longer of any fixed academic abode, and I've been a migrant four times. It's not because the international police will be now for reasons. I'm conscious of the fact that the two speakers only had a few minutes to develop their thing, but I did feel that it was a little bit uh, one-sided, and perhaps also Eurocentric. Now, one of the things that um, did concern me is that there are disadvantages in fact uh, to migration. Um, I live in Embarra, uh, Croydon. Um, it has quite a large immigrant population. Some of those actually are refugees. And I'm, I'm not going to consider those. These are not economic migrations. That's just a persecution of political religious forms, so we take that out. But one of the effects seems to be is that it's had um, repercussions, for example, on the cost of housing, particularly renting, in fact, for uh, populations that has been there for some time. Um, you also have a situation, I mean, this is very nice for me if I go to a restaurant, and you meet lots of nice Polish uh, waitresses, then you all seem to be graduates half of them from the university town of Wurch. I don't know what Wurch is, except the fact it's a very big university town. But these are, uh, being a waitress is not really a university level job. And I'm not even implicitly saying that university education should be for vocational purposes. I don't believe that at all. But one of the things that does worry me is that because um, such educated workers, and they're very fluent in English, 
and skilled socially, it does have a repercussion. <coughs> People who have been living in the country, it doesn't just apply to Britain, of course, who've got low-level skills that could actually fill those sorts of jobs, and I think that could be a source of some tensions. And I wonder whether you, as I say, I know you haven't had the time, you haven't had the time to develop uh, to address all these issues, but I think these are quite important matters that need consideration. Okay, thank you. Would you like to respond um, to Yes, uh, thank you very much for the question. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, I definitely think that there might be problems when you look at the question of people with a, an academic degree uh, working in, in a uh, job which they are uh, quite clearly overqualified to do. However, this occurs around the world. Uh, it's not a specific phenomenon either for the district of the part where you are living, uh, neither for, for the UK or for Sweden or for the European Union. That happens all the time. The interesting thing is, however, do you work in such a job for a short period in order to earn the money, in order to then going back home to do something else within the fr framework where, where you actually got the academic, your academic degree in the first place? This is, I think, of, of crucial importance. And I don't have the answer to that question in regard to your Polish uh, waitresses. Um, as for the African doctors, Indian doctors here, when they're going back home, their skills are being used here for our benefit. Exactly. Exactly. But on the other hand, though, I do know that there are pretty, pretty many examples of, of people with Polish origin who have been working in Sweden, uh, who have been working in, in uh, facilities where, which doesn't necessarily match their uh, academic degrees, but who then have learned how the system works, have learned how to become entrepreneurs and so on, and who have then gone back to Poland and enhanced the Polish economy. And this is also something where I think you can find a lot of examples of the famous Polish plumber, which you spoke a lot about in the UK a couple of years ago, where people learn how to run an enterprise and who today are contributing to the Polish economy in a very good way. And finally, um, a migrant is a migrant, whether they are originally an asylum seeker or whether they have a, a, an origin as a, as a labor migrant, they are still a migrant. And for my part, as a, a Swedish Minister of Migration and Asylum Policy, I constantly have to point out that I think that you need both ways, you need many ways for legal migrants to enter into uh, a, a country, not just one. And the problem with the Swedish migration policy up until 2008 was that it for several decades only offered one singular way, namely as an asylum seeker. And that has been one of our main problems, precisely. Well, the first point is that um, you mentioned the fact that there's been a bit of a focus on, on uh, Europe. Well, perhaps that's explained by the fact that this is the European Institute which is conducting a discussion, I quote, on European policies promoting development. So forgive us if we stuck to the agenda that we were given. Uh, with, regard, with, regard to the, with regard to the broader issues, um, let me make a couple of points. <clears throat> First of all, there is a difference clearly between migrants within the European Union and uh, migrants from outside. As long as Britain remains in the European Union, which I hope is forever, but is not to be taken for granted, free movement of goods, persons, capital and services applies. And persons are of equal stature in that uh, quartet to goods or services or capital. So I think one of the great achievements of the European Union is to be, has been to free up movement of people around Europe. And I must say, I welcome being served by a Polish waitress uh, 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 or any other waiter or waitress uh, from any other country. So, I mean, I, 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 I say that not in a facile or glib way because I understand the point you're making. And obviously there can be a sense of concern expressed most recently by the Mayor of London that uh, <coughs> foreigners seem to be doing all of the menial jobs that otherwise would be done by English people. I don't agree with his sentiment, I don't agree with his conclusion, but I can understand that people would give voice to that. I think one of the great glories of England, and in particular of London, is that it is such a cosmopolitan place and is so welcoming, in my experience, to people from other parts of the world. And I think it's greatly enriched this country, and I think it generally enriches countries. And as somebody who spent most of his life trying to resist the nationalist impulses that sometimes one feeds. 
I think that migration is one very good way of doing that, and I think it's a basically a positive thing. And of course it will create pressures, and I think that there are migrant communities who do not integrate, and who deliberately keep themselves apart, and who deliberately keep themselves apart in the playgrounds of our schools, and do not make the real attempt that they should make to integrate, and I think that they are also to be greatly criticised for that. So I think that this is uh, an issue which there are many people at fault, but there are many great advantages. Thank you. Got a question right at the back. Yes. Yes, right at the back. Yeah. Um, my name is Examples show uh, very clearly that migrants are necessary 
Migrants are necessary because they do jobs which people don't always want to do, or which they think that they, they really don't, they don't envisage uh, 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 doing, but who needs to be carried out nevertheless. For my part, I think that you should always be very clear. Jobs should be offered, you know, on a free labor market. They should be up for grabs. But if you don't want to grab the opportunity, somebody else should be given the opportunity to move in, regardless of whether they come from inside the European Union or outside. And this is the basic premises for, uh, for, for us constructing the new labor migration law in 2008. Allow the uh, uh, employer to decide whether you want to, uh, where you want to pick your labour force from, and he or she would probably make the right choice, because going outside of the European Union is, after all, uh, a much greater risk than being inside or being inside in, uh, of your own nation. And this also has to be taken into the economic calculation. After all, we are at the LSE, so economy does play a great part in, in, the, in the discussion. Sorry, this was a long answer. I'll try to be more brief. But could you quantify in terms of monetary value? I just wanted to know. Always, I think <coughs> emergency, you know, job taking, benefits, numbers, and all this. But if we have a fact, we'll be able to balance the argument. Mm -hmm. You know, X amount contribution, therefore, this is essential. Let us not be Maybe I, I can jump in here for, for, for a second. Um, I, I don't know the figures for Sweden, but uh, and I remember the Home Office here in the UK a few years ago um, making, undertaking a study to basically look at the net economic contributions of migration to the UK. And they, obviously this is a complicated um, study to undertake and there are lots of problems um, with that kind of analysis. But uh, the headline figure that was created at the time was that, on balance, 2.5 um, billion um, pounds per year would be added, are added to the UK economy um, by inward migration to the, to the UK. Um, I don't think that study has been repeated since then. Um, as I said, it has been criticized, but it, uh, I think, was one of the few attempts to quantify the kind of net effects of, of, of migration. Can I add to this? Uh, when Mrs. Sarcher increased the fees for overseas students, uh, a study was carried out about the contribution of foreign students in Britain and the amount was due. Yeah. Got um, contribution in the back? Um, yeah. Could, could you speak yeah, up a little bit? Yeah, my name is Mary, and I'm a housewife for the moment, which means I'm only do housework. And I come from the London Borough of Residence, which is East London. And uh, I just want to comment from my personal experience. Um, uh, giving a migrant a job um, um, for, for a variety of reasons uh, uh, is one issue, and assessing whether this migrant is fit uh, to carry the job in the United Kingdom uh, is another. Uh, traditionally, the British, uh, the British model of uh, migration policy has been heavily reliant on um, cost-benefit analysis, uh, assessing the fact that how or what is cheaper to get this person for abroad or, or to, to train and educate this person here. Um, in the, in the United Kingdom, um, taking into consideration the cultural value, whether the person is culturally fit to carry out a job, no matter if it is a binman or a nurse or a doctor, um, is actually a very crucial issue. And it may take years, years of training to bring somebody from abroad and train them on, on a cultural, <coughs> cultural issue. And it might cost, cost them more than it can be imagined. So therefore, the question comes up now, what is actually cheaper for the United Kingdom to bring this passion from outside or to train the passion locally? I address this to the, to the gentleman in the middle. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, it's the gentleman in the middle. I will try and answer the question. Uh, I think that this is not something which can so easily be calculated. You are quite right in mentioning the cost-benefit analysis, which always needs to be done in these cases. However, I think that that should be done by the employer rather than government offices or government authorities, because I simply don't think that the government authorities have the means and the possibilities of carrying out this, because it's very highly complex. You don't know what sort of skills or what sort of training that you are, you, you are needing. And 
Another example which I can you know, stand on when I'm trying to argue this case is we now have uh, uh, firms, uh, employment firms around Israel who operate towards the Western Balkans. Particularly in a country like Serbia, you have a high surplus of skilled engineers uh, who are uh, ready to move abroad, especially now when we have visa liberalization towards, uh, introduced towards Serbia. Uh, and these employment firms do the job on the spot. They work in Sweden, where they connect with people who are interested in hiring, hiring the engineers. Then they find another employment firm as their partner in Serbia, who carry out, uh, carries out the validation and also uh, creates courses how the Swedish society works and also crash courses in Swedish. And then they bring the people back all through the chain to Sweden. And this is a very simple mechanism really, because the firm in Serbia doesn't get paid unless the firm in Sweden gets paid, and the firm in Sweden won't get paid unless the last facilitator, the person who's actually employing the person, is happy with what they got. So it's a very good cost-benefit analysis inherent in the system. And this, I mean, is the important thing. If there were engineers, we're speaking specifically about electro-engineers in my example, available on the Swedish market, they would be hired. But there are not. Because electro-engineers is something which carry, uh, um, uh, which, uh, um, sorry, I lost the word. Uh, Electro-engineers is something, uh, a very highly specialized uh, brand of engineer, where you have a surplus in Serbia, but which you don't have in Sweden, because they have already been hired by other uh, companies. This, I think, answers partly your question. I'm aware that there are lots of other um, questions. Um, in order to get perhaps a few more, maybe I'll take a, a group of three questions now, and, um, and then give the, the speakers uh, time to respond. The first one here, second one here, and the third one in the middle. Yes. Uh, my name is Donan. I'm a Mexican PhD student at UCL. And um, I'd like to ask you, Mr. Tobias, if you know the percentage or uh, have an estimation of how many uh, migrants you're taking, uh, the percentage of those being highly skilled migrants. And um, if you have, uh, <coughs> if the Swedish government has a strategy uh, with the receiving countries, either from Europe or from abroad, um, to um, develop some kind of plan or some kind of strategy in order to avoid the brain drain. David Hanley, I chair a committee in the House of Lords, which is just starting an inquiry into European migration policy in a general or global approach. Uh, I wonder if you could just give an answer, both of you perhaps, to this conundrum. You're both obviously on what I call the liberal end of the spectrum of, of this matter. Uh, but it does seem to me that the rising tide of linking inward migration with the level of youth unemployment in all our societies, which is getting pretty dramatic, uh, is that makes it extremely difficult to advance the sort of arguments you advance. How would you, how would you propose, in political terms, that you can take this on, uh, since I don't imagine you would subscribe to the view that the youth unemployment is caused by the migration? Thank you. And my last one. Yeah, hi, my, my name is Rahul Kamat. Uh, this is, I think, a related question to the question which has just come out, which is, I think in Britain we seem to have an odd situation where business and economists seem heavily in favor of migration. The public seems to be heavily against it. And politicians seem to throw up their hands and say, we need to give the public what they want. And then they strike back room deals with business to give business what they want. And there doesn't seem to be a mature political discourse in this country. It seems things are different in Sweden. And I'm curious as to how that seemed to happen there. I don't think we'd ever have a British minister saying things you've said today, at least not in the public forum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Yes, sir, would you like to just tell us all? Yes, uh, and I'll really try to be brief. Uh, I know it's. Uh, 
ask you a question about the uh, percentage uh, ratio of those who arrive in Sweden who could be called highly skilled migrants. I think it's a bit difficult to answer that straightforward. Since 2008, we have had approximately 14,000 migrants arriving in Sweden under the new legislation, which was enacted. That's not very much, but then again, we have had economic recession. I think that you could say that about 50% of those that have arrived could be, you know, put into the box uh, highly skilled migrants. They usually come from countries like China and India, and I think that when you we move to, to the second part of your question, the strategy to see to it that those countries don't get any problems out of brain drain, I think that you could very safely say that when it comes to IT engineers leaving India to go into Sweden, India very clearly has a surplus of skilled IT engineers. They don't see it as a problem, and I think that the same goes for China. So no, I don't think that there is uh, uh, any problem with this. But in the future, I'm not ruling out the need to have such a strategy. And that brings us back to the title of this seminar, the need to connect with development issues. Particularly if we were to get more people in the healthcare sector, I think that would be an interesting topic. Uh, oh my Lord, it's very interesting the question. Um, usually I'm called a conservative in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> or worse. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think that it's very interesting. I think that facts uh, are always good. When you stand on facts, you, you are on the safe ground. And when I speak about migration, I do it with a very safe background. I know that if it weren't for the people who are today arriving in Sweden as asylum seekers and as, as migrants, we would have <coughs> negative figures with our population already today, 2012. In 2020, sorry, 2024, <coughs> we would have an even worse situation. In 2050, we would have a situation where approximately two persons would have to work to, uh, to sustain each retired person in our society. Today we have four. Four and 2052. Now, for a Swedish welfare society, the welfare society that we have, this is a tremendous challenge. And we need to build migration and recruitment strategies to overcome this. Sometimes, if you pardon me, I, I make a joke. I say that uh, I was a French philosopher called Frédéric Bastiat, who used to say that uh, each country has an, uh, every country has an army, its own, or someone else. Today, perhaps, you could update it and say that each country has a minister of finance, its own, or someone else, <laughs> particularly true perhaps in the case of Greece. But anyway, anyway, I'm mentioning this because ministers of finance can calculate. That's what they are there for. And each minister of finance in the European Union are well aware of what I'm saying because this is the truth for all European countries about our shrinking and our aging population. And the only way out of this is to build systems for legal and well-managed migration. We won't be able to avoid it. We can do this in a bad way or a good way, but we need to do it. Uh, and finally, uh, I didn't really get your question. It was it why, why is Sweden exceptional, or at least seek exceptional? I, I guess, how can you have this, what have you done to be, allow you to have this fact-based discussion <coughs> in Sweden? It doesn't seem to take place in Britain. Well, I think that maybe it emanates from the fact that we don't have a colonial past. We have always been in favor of free trade. That has been the trademark of Sweden, uh, and because free trade is what has sustained the Swedish economy. And from this, naturally, stems the idea that if you have free trade for goods, then why, don't you should, why shouldn't you have free trade, uh, sorry, free movement of people in the same way? Well, <coughs> just coming to David Hanney's question, um, which is absolutely the core political issue. It's very difficult to think of a simple answer. If you have unemployment, any degree of unemployment, there will be opposition to workers coming in and being employed from abroad. If you take Germany for an example, in 47% of the construction companies in Germany, there is a deficit in workers. But there is still unemployment in Germany, more admittedly than here, but still reasonably substantial in parts of Germany. So the equation of simply saying we have unemployment there and we don't want migrants <coughs> and taking jobs simply doesn't work. But it's very easy to say that and very difficult to persuade people in terms of the general, the general population. Um, one can also make the argument, uh, well, the job vacancies are there, 
and they're not being filled. The reason that they're not being filled is that locals are not taking up the jobs, and therefore people come in to take them. That happened in Spain during the boom period. Today, there is a massive exodus to Latin America from where most migrants came to, to, to Spain rather than North Africa, which is the common perception. Most of them are going back home because the jobs aren't there. Um, how can one make the case politically in a populist way that growth and prosperity has always been founded, as the United States demonstrates better than anywhere else, by a vibrant, incoming, migrant community participating in economic development and growth? I don't know how else one can argue it, other than the old argument which we've both mentioned, which is there's a quid pro quo in globalization. Britain is just as committed, I think, to free trade and open trade as anywhere in the world. And Britain also can understand that argument better than most, namely that you can't have it one way. It's not one-way traffic. You can't simply say, we want to sell our goods all over the world, but we decline completely to allow our society to be invaded by some migrants, as it would be put by the by the my, my, by the negative racist racist political forces uh, in this state. But I, I haven't got a simple answer to the question. Right. Last quick round. I take uh, three quick questions, and then we have need to close. Probably this, yeah. I'm interested to know how, because the, I'm a uh, master's student here at the LSE, and what you suggest is, is certainly not a new idea in terms of having a win-win outcome out of the migration um, process. And I guess that the reference is the idea of co-development that was born in Belgium in the 80s. How is your idea any different from what they suggested back in the 80s that seemed to have kind of shaded yeah, at the end of the 90s? Okay, yeah. Um. Yeah, Mr. Bilstrom. Um, I'm just thinking that usually, perhaps being Colombian, I'm very aware of uh, not ever having something such a free meal. So I'm thinking that there is a, um, always a tendency, especially in migration policies, of liberating one as you tighten on another one. So I'm particularly thinking about um, the introduction of tuition fees in Sweden and how this fits with um, your labor liberalization in terms of international uh, high skilled migrants. But I'm going to keep the question very simple, and is I actually applied for a master's in Sweden and got accepted and chose to come to the United Kingdom precisely because I had to pay. So what is your government doing to retain and attract international um, students, basically? And um, question at the back. My observation is that the um, reticence of the European politics to great uh, inviting migrations positively. Is it to do with the density of the European countries compared to America? Uh, the development flow from America, for example, in India case, the Infosys, who is now contributing a huge amount of software development, <coughs> they actually learn the techniques, if you like, from America. But doesn't there be a barrier for the software engineers from America to go to the open door policy. What I'm saying is it to do with the density of the population of the countries of Europe, which is uh, creating resistance among the politicians to say loudly that we do want their positive <coughs> Sweden. Because Sweden is a lot, much less dense country among the European countries, maybe Sweden can offer to be slightly more pragmatic and realistic. Whereas countries like the British Kingdom, who had a very strong trade relations with the entire world, but this government is so high, <coughs> to talk up. Thank you, thank you. I'm afraid uh, we have to be very brief because I've just been told uh, that we need the room. So, uh, <laughs> Peter, would you? Well, I'd be very brief. Um, just in answer to that last question. I don't think it's so much to do with density as the fact that there is a perceived identity within European countries. They are not they are immigrant countries, but they don't recognize themselves as immigrant countries. They believe that they're homogeneous. They believe that their country has a unique character and that their people are different. I don't agree with that. 
but that is genuinely the belief, a belief that has sustained horrible wars, some of them very recent, because of disputes between neighbouring countries who in fact, on any basis, might be said to share the same heritage, although not the same language, but their perception of themselves is different. So Europeans and older societies have a much bigger difficulty in dealing with diversity than the United States, which is founded on it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Final <coughs> Yes, thank you. The two questions. Well, first of all, I think that the really important thing about what has changed since the 80s is really everything. I mean, we are living in a completely different world than what we did in the 80s. We now have the BRIC countries, which we didn't have ascending countries, and that forms the basis of a completely different framework of a migration dialogue between the countries of, of receiving and the countries of destination. Uh, even Mexico is on its way to becoming a destination country from other countries in the, the, the uh, uh, Latin American and South American sphere, something which was unthinkable in the 80s that that was going to happen. So everything is different and pretty much the same at the same time. As for the tuition fees, I'm not going to give you a lengthy answer, just saying that, well, when I was a student in Cambridge, I also had to pay my fees uh, and pay them back as well. So that wasn't different in those days either. Uh, I think that it, things have less to do uh, when you try to attract uh, the best and the brightest with skills than with the quality of the education, what you actually can offer. It's very difficult for a Swedish university to compete with well, with, with uh, Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard and so on and so forth. Or else. Or else. Thank you. Which is... So, but on one spot, maybe you can compete. And that brings us back to the migration issue. We are now aiming towards increasing the possibility for people who are students in Sweden to stay on for a longer period to work. And that might be actually something to add to the list of reasons why you should choose Sweden over other countries, apart from scholarship programs and so on and so forth. So, that ends my answer. Excellent. Uh, due to the um, wonders of technology, you are invited to continue the discussion on, on Twitter. You have the hashtag suggested there. Um, can I join you? Can I ask you before you, you leave to join me in, in thanking our two speakers for the <laughs>